Hello, everyone. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. This is the Thriving Minds podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Strohmeyer, who is a psychology lecturer, and she is a mindfulness researcher in the UK. And today, she's joining us to tell us all about her recent results, which I think you'll find really interesting about just how much mindfulness should you be doing? Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are, because I'm sure they'd love to know. Yeah, I'm, so I'm Sarah. I'm, a, as you say, a psychology lecturer and mindfulness researcher in the UK. Um, I've done quite a bit of mindfulness uh, research focusing on, on dose in, uh, in particular, so looking at um, dose in mindfulness, how much people should be practicing or what is helpful for people, what might, might not be helpful, um, all of these different mechanisms of dose in mindfulness. So how did and, you come to, yeah. you, you picked this topic for your PhD for a reason, didn't you? Because mm. you actually did yeah. a mindfulness course and yes. started to wonder, wow, this 40 or 50 minutes was quite long. How much yeah. should I actually be doing? There's so many different programs. There's so many apps and everything. Mm. So that that's kind of where you started from yeah yeah exactly so I did as part of my after I did my master's I um, worked as a researcher in a, a clinical psychology um, institute and as part of that I uh, participated in a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program which is an, an eight-week program uh, that was led through my work uh, so an eight-week program that has is very structured sort of has um face-to-face -face, uh, sessions with a mindfulness teacher. It's got um, a daily home practices that you are asked to complete over the course of the eight weeks. And um, these practices are quite long, I would say, or I found them at the time, I found them quite long. So their uh, first week's full points starts with a 40 to 50 minute body scan, which is where you are asked to listen to a recording of 40 to 50 minutes uh, scanning your body, like paying attention to the different parts of your body. And I thought that was, it, I found it quite helpful, but also quite challenging at this stage. So this is one of the first things I'd really uh, done mindfulness before. I'd read about it beforehand, done like maybe some practices, but, but not to, to the same extent, I guess. And um, so I, I did the program and I really enjoyed it, but I thought it was a little bit challenging at times, for, especially for me at the time. So I was, I was working full time. Um, you know, so and and you know, driving to work, coming back from work, cooking dinner, all these practical things that you have to do. Well, that's what life. most people and, are doing. <laughs> yeah, and and I thought that's quite a lot to do, like forty to fifty minutes a day, fit, fitting that in as well without being interrupted by anyone. Um, I thought that's quite intense. So, but I really enjoyed the mindfulness part part of it, and the really like the the mindfulness teaching elements and and discussing experiences and thought here about what other people um have said. So what, what I did after the, the end of the program is um, I did an online mindfulness course that was actually um, offered through Monash University. It was uh, through FutureLearn. Uh, so I think it was called uh, Mindfulness for Wellbeing and Peak Performance. And I think it was maybe three or four weeks and um, included a lot shorter mindfulness exercises as well as some, some loving kindness exercises, which is a different type of mindfulness practice, um, as well as some mindfulness of the breath meditation practice which is where you focus on on breathing sort of observing your breath um, but these included a lot shorter practices and shorter sessions so maybe 10 minute practices um, and you could download them and use use them yourself later on um, and so I looked into this a little bit more and I thought well there's a lot of different mindfulness programs out there so we've got these eight-week programs 
like uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. There's another one um, that is, is re been researched a lot right, called mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR um, that, that have a, a lot of positive things um, found in clinical and non-clinical populations, so the general population as well. Um, but then there's all these other programs as well, such as the online program that I did. Uh, there's also a lot of mindfulness apps as well. So there's things like Headspace or Inside Timer and um, all these Calm. other <laughs> different, Calm, yeah, there are lots of different apps um, out there. And also there's things like bibliotherapy, which is book-based uh, mindfulness uh, programs, you know, where you have like a chapter a week that you look at and you have some audio recordings um, to complete as well. So there's all these different types of programs and I thought that's really interesting. So, so how do we know what works? You know, do you just, what, what, how do you know? You know, so I thought that's what I was interested in uh, primarily. And, I and thought, we, we have to tell the audience um, <laughs> that you just published an amazing paper last year yeah. demonstrating, and I can tell you the audience is going to like hearing this, demonstrating that you could do five minutes a few times yeah. over two weeks and end up with a bigger effect than doing a longer practice and these are yes. for novices these are for novices we have to say that for people that have never done very yeah. much kind of mindfulness or meditation in the past mm. so this is um this is what i looked into for my phd exactly so i looked at uh, first of all i did like a, a large scale sort of review of all the different types of programs um, that included some mindfulness and um, looking at all these different RCTs or, or randomized control trials, uh, comparing them. So I had over 200 studies included in that, um, looking at all these different dose elements. So not just the, the length of a mindfulness practice they asked people to do in these programs, but also things like how long the program was, how many sessions, um, you know, how long the sessions were, if they had face-to-face -face contact or if it was an online or app-based program, all these different things. And generally what I found was that there was no dose-response effect. So there was no difference in, in amount of dose that people practiced or, or had the program. And you mean and by that time or length of program, yeah. don't you, by, by dose for people that don't? Yeah. This is a really novel concept, um, I think, mm. Sarah, that you contacted yeah. me about because I think this is so important and me being a pharmacist always having to deliver mm. in the past when I was working doses that match people and so you calling exactly. you're yeah. calling this the and this we are altering brain states so you're actually calling it a dose meaning time and yeah. length of program absolutely because I think dose is, is, is quite a, is, is an interesting term. So like you say, it's um, been used in, um, in pharmaceuticals or in medicine quite a lot, you know, dose of medicine that you administer to a person. So dose maybe sounds a little bit medical, but arguably there isn't really a better term out there to describe it because it's not really amount. So it's other things as well. So it's, it's amount of sessions. It's, it's also length of a program. It's also, um, you know, length of a practice, how frequently people practice. So it's all of those different doses. Um, and so I looked at 15 different doses, for instance, in my review, because there's so many different things connected to it uh, as well. So, so this is the, yeah, so this is, this is the interesting part. So, so this, this dose effect, um, I thought was really, really interesting. And it's not what I expected. So a lot of the research and, and theory from the past says a uh, longer mindfulness practice might be the, the one to go with. There's a lot of evidence on these uh, longer programs like, such as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I thought, okay, so maybe that is the case. Then there's a stronger effect for these programs for, for mental health outcomes. 
But generally, that's not what I found. And then I did this study that um, you mentioned as well. So looking into the mechanism of, of the length of a practice uh, a little bit further as well. And so I compared five-minute mindfulness practices to 20-minute mindfulness practices. Um, I didn't quite go for the 40 minutes because I thought five compared to 20 is, is different, different enough. That's probably mm -hmm. a good dose difference. Uh, and also had an active control group, which I just listened to some, some audiobook about the history of the universe. So, so something completely different. And what I found there as well is that for the, this group of people, so this was uh, this, these were people that haven't done any mindfulness practice before. They were what we call novice mindfulness practitioners. So they had limited previous experiences of mindfulness. A lot of them didn't know what mindfulness was or, or how to, right. you know, practice mindfulness. And um, can I ask actually, you, sorry, sorry yeah. to interrupt, oh, the sorry. people, the participants that you're in recruiting and enrolling in your study, when you say healthy, do they have um, some base level of depression, anxiety, or stress, or like, do are you are they being excluded or included, or or they like how do you yeah. how do you um, so yeah control for that? I guess. Yeah, so we measured uh, depression, anxiety, and stress, and had a look at um, as you say what their baseline levels were. They were not clinical levels, so these weren't people that were in hospitals, for instance. Yes, uh, there's there's sort of um, you know everyone experiences some level of depression yes. and anxiety yeah. at, mm -hmm. at the, the time. This is pre-pandemic, so so um, but still everyone has some sort of stress in their life, some some level of depression. But it wasn't sort of to the extent of clinical levels because at this point it didn't it didn't feel ethical and maybe to also start at this point. And there were and there are no medications. No medication. Yes. No. So they were yeah. generally um, health healthy. They self-selected yeah. in as well. Yeah. Um, are, I never are they over eighteen healthy. as well? These are adults. Yes. So they were yeah. yeah all adults over the age of eighteen, and they ranged sort of from from you know early twenties to uh, mid seventies in Great. participants, and so equal in gender across genders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Across genders as well. Um, so yeah, including all the different genders as well, and. Um, that was that was really interesting but all of them i asked not to practice any mindfulness and also uh, sorry not to <laughs> sorry not to um have previous mindfulness practice experience i did also ask them not to practice mindfulness outside the session actually because i thought i really want to control that so only practice mindfulness when you are in the group but not outside of the group and i asked them um make sure that they didn't do that and um, just because I really wanted to know what is what is the relationship here? Because then I can really say, okay, I know how much they practice because they only did it in the group. So can um, you describe the two groups? So one's five minutes, how many times yeah. a week? So and how many weeks? Twice a week. Twice a week um, for over, two weeks? Yeah, twice a week for two weeks. Uh, so not, not too much. Yeah, otherwise yeah. 20 minutes twice a week for two weeks? Yes, so it's, yeah. it's five minutes twice a week uh, for two weeks and 20 minutes twice a week for two weeks. And then I had a control group. Um, right. All of them, it, it was a total of listening to something for 25 minutes. So the five-minute group also got 20 minutes of this audio book. Right. And the 20-minute one also got five minutes of an audio, audio book. So to make it mm. the same length of 25 right. minutes. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's no difference in you know time spent somewhere because that can sometimes yes. bias, bias yeah. results uh, as well. Um, and it was really interesting because... I actually found that that this five minutes was found more effective for reducing levels of psychological distress. And, and so this is like significant too, anxiety. wasn't it? Yes, Which is yeah. quite something in the yeah. doing the research you're doing. Yeah, and it was it was very interesting because that's again not 
what I expected to find based on, on previous research and, and studies, but actually looking into, when I looked into it a little bit more, I thought it made a lot of sense because these were novice mindfulness practitioners. So this is not people that had done mindfulness before that are you know, used to doing this a little bit more. And um, when I looked into it a bit more, I, I listened to, to different mindfulness teachers as well. So Sharon Salzberg, for instance, has said before that can actually, if, if what she would give advice to someone who was wanting to start a mindfulness practice is actually to start five to 10 minutes, you know, don't, don't do the long practices. So this is what she said. So maybe start with the five, 10 minutes. Um, and that's really interesting. And then I thought, I thought about it a little bit more in terms of um, understanding it a little bit. And I use this metaphor a lot to explain this to people. So for instance, if, if you think about someone who's wanting to run a marathon, for instance, who's got no experience of running, doesn't regularly go for, for runs or jogs um, around the block or anything, you wouldn't expect this person who wants to run a marathon to sort of run the marathon on the first day they put on the running shoes, right? You don't run 42 kilometers on the get-go without any training first time you put on the shoes, but rather maybe start with one kilometer, then five kilometers, and then maybe build that up over time to run the 42 kilometers as well, uh, which makes which makes a lot of sense from, from that perspective that it might be similar to mindfulness. So, so maybe starting with something that feels doable, that feels less challenging, and then building that up over time. So it does it does make sense in that um, in that case. Also to say, I think not everyone wants to run a marathon, if we think about that with mindfulness. So if we're thinking about the, the running analogy, not everyone needs to go to the Olympics, you know. Um, and actually from, from physical health, you know, running five kilometers three times a week, for instance, has been found really helpful. You know, this, this sort mm -hmm. of lower dose um, marathon running. And that might be similar for mindfulness. That, so if it's helpful for someone to do 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, um, and then not increase this practice, could that be helpful for their, their health as well, rather than longer practices, um, which, which, you know, might not be practical for that person, you know, that yeah. doesn't, that's not to say that um, long mindfulness practices aren't helpful, I think they are, and there's a lot of research saying that they are helpful, it's just, um, also, two things can be true at the same time. So for some people, longer practices can be helpful. For other people, maybe shorter practices might be helpful. But I think um, it stops a lot of people engaging in mindfulness practices if they're told to do 50 minutes a day. Yeah, absolutely. This just opens a whole wider array of questions. Um, uh, I don't know where to start, but but so yes, yeah. so you've got the short mindfulness, and it's got some benefits for novices that are trying to see if they could actually. That seems reasonable: five minutes twice a week for two weeks. How long is this the effect of that? Um, you know, do they need to keep doing that five minutes twice a week forever, and does it start to lose its benefit, and or do they have to? You know, like with running and walking, you, you can keep extending because you get tolerance, which is Yep. potentially why people end up in really long practices um mm. so you know just so many questions there that i guess we can't answer because we don't know that yet but you know the bit that as you as you and i met the bit that's not talked about a lot in these this area is the fact that just like short things that have benefits and longer things can be benefit for people but so you can also do too much uh, and Absolutely, and you yeah. get a flip of the U curve, um, and Willoughby Britton talks about this a lot, and she published that paper too, showing you get mm. 
you get an uh, inverted U-curb, um, which is well known for stress too, where you have good stress, yeah. it plateaus, and then it can go over. It's too much stress. And the same for mm. doing, you can do too much mindfulness or meditation practice too and get end up sick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so what we've written, um, that it's less likely that this would happen with five minutes. I think, it's, well, absolutely. Well, you're at that bottom happen. part of the curve, yeah. eh? Mm. But I think uh, so. Willoughby Britton has, has done this, um, like you say, she's done some interesting research in in this. And one of the things that she's looked at is um, looking at the effect of mindfulness on sleep. So there was was something she did uh, looking at longer mindfulness practices and shorter mindfulness practices, and 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 sort of in, in a wider research study, not particularly looking at dose, but mainly at sleep. And actually, um, she she found that practicing more intensely or, or longer can actually not be helpful for sleep as well so for people falling to sleep staying asleep uh, as well whereas shorter practices in that case were found helpful for for sleep um also what she's found is is sometimes they can be um unhelpful for depression things like that longer practices because participants can find it really difficult um also delusions things like that people have been found to have some some hallucinations as well um, and this is this is quite experienced level mindfulness so this is people practicing quite quite a yeah, lot in, in I mean, kind of and large silent retreats too that yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway so but we want to focus on your work and um what i'm really curious about too is the for, for someone listening they'll, they might be saying that aren't familiar with what mindful is mindfulness is or meditation necessarily but everyone hears about it because it's in the newspapers when yeah. you say five minutes can you describe to the audience exactly what your participants were doing during that five minutes yeah, so this was a, a mindfulness, what's called a mindfulness of the breath meditation practice. Um, it was a, um, so this is a, yeah, mindfulness of the breath meditation practice. It was recorded by a um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapist. So there's and someone who's experienced in, in mindfulness um, delivering the MBCT program. And it was sort of similar in style to, to what is used in these uh, longer programs as well. So similar, similar practice. What it is, is um, sort of focusing on the breath without judgment, just observing the breath, you know, inhaling and exhaling. Um, <clears throat> it was a, a guided practice of participants where were um, just reminded to return their attention to the breath, you know, do that without judgment. You know, if, if the mind wanders as it does for, for everyone, you know, that's okay. Just bring your mind back to the breath. Focus on the, the sensations of the breath in different parts of your body. So, for instance, um, in, in your nose or mouth when, when you inhale, in your belly expanding, things like that, um, and sort of doing that for five minutes. With, and they're, with they're listening to someone guiding them how to do that. Yeah. So that's yeah. why you have the audio book as a control, for example, to control for yes. the sound and the vibrations and yeah, as exactly. well. So, so, so both, both listening to something, but the, <clears throat> the control group didn't listen to anything to do with mindfulness. So this was about the history of the universe. You know, it was, it was just um, something so, that so then, So they're not to. being told to pay attention to their breath, basically, for people listening. Yeah. That day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they're not seeing anyone either, are they? They're just, it's audio. It's not visual. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, just in a group as well. So, so they're sitting. I was in a group. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not discussing their experiences afterwards. They're just sort of coming, sitting and listening to something and then leave. But together. Rather than anything else. Yeah. And same for the audio book group too. Yes. But the audio. Yeah. 
the control group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you manage. So you're you're uh, controlling for sex, uh, the gender, the group size, the location, the context, and all of that as well. Yeah. Time of day, all of these different things um, that was controlled for. Yeah. And then equal equal across the groups uh, as well. So so previous experience and, and all of that that right. sort of thing. And they. <clears throat> yeah. Great. This would be fabulous to do as an online one, seeing it lot so many people are using mm. these online apps now too. It would be lovely to know if it uh, holds yeah. out there without the group effect. I did do an online um, study. So this is um, as well. So looking at a single session mindfulness of the breath meditation practice. So this is something more recently that's been looked into sort of the effects on, on state outcomes. Um, so what I did is a, is a 10 minute mindfulness practice compared again to to an audio recording. Um, this was online uh, last last year, so during the pandemic as well, where people were asked to to listen to <clears throat> and follow the guidance on the mindfulness practice, and then see what the effects are on state outcomes. So not sort of longer lasting outcomes, but sort of in the moment changes to their their sort of state mindfulness, so how they're feeling right now. Um, and also um, state hope and state gratitude. So how grateful they're feeling, how how they're hopeful they're feeling about the future um, at this at this time. And um, one of the things that we can't look at, and that what you mentioned before as well, is sort of the longevity, like how long lasting these brief mindfulness yes, practices yeah. are, um, how people are picking them up. What I actually found was when I did this this large scale review is where I looked at these sort of follow up time points. So sometimes in studies you do um, you have a look at what happens immediately after a program and compare that what happened you know how you were at baseline before the program, but also sometimes at follow up. So maybe um, three months follow up or six months follow up. Um, how people are doing? What I found there actually is that um, for psychological distress or depression, anxiety, and stress, people who were um, told or participated in these longer programs were told to practice um, for longer actually had higher levels of depression and anxiety and stress at these follow-up time points whereas people who were told maybe do five to ten minutes didn't have that now we don't know what happened in between because uh, we didn't you, you know people didn't uh, who have run these studies don't don't regularly catch up and say yeah, how much did you practice because that's not what they were uh, planning on doing but what was interesting is, is I'm, I'm thinking that might be the case, is that people who were told to do longer practices, that's that's harder to keep up, keep up than someone being told, oh, maybe do five to ten practices, yeah, five to ten minute practices. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how you did the study too, like the group effect, because social connection for so many people is so important. Mm. I'm wondering if you have the people come online in a group, whether you get even better be benefits than someone just listening yeah. to an app doing breathing, yeah. for example. I'm also interested in just breathing itself um, without calling it mindfulness. Can you just call it breathing? For, like what's the difference yeah. between someone just consciously becoming aware that they should be deepening their breath, for example, because, you know, when we get really focused, we tend to shorten our breath and, things like that. I wonder, are mm. you going to be looking at that in the future or has someone yeah. already done that? Yeah. Um, I think I, I would, I would say so. Absolutely. Cause I think one of the issues I know you've, you've spoken to Nicholas Van Dam, for instance, is the, is the whole hype of mindfulness at the moment as, as well. So, so, um, and I think that's quite dangerous in places for two reasons. So, so for one thing, it's, it's seen as a, a bit of a panacea about it can fix everything, you know, just do some mindfulness. Uh, I know they did in, in Amazon 
a couple of years ago now, I think in, in the US, for instance, they had these meditation pods for stressed workers uh-huh. to just do some mindfulness rather yeah. than well, they're everywhere actually issues. in the US in companies, yeah. they've got those mindfulness mm. pods in many, many yeah. different companies. So rather than looking at all oh, it's changing some structural things or, or other things that could, could help people as well, just do some mindfulness. And I think that that's quite dangerous because that's not really how it works. But but on the other side as well is um looking at mindfulness quite quite differently as well so so mindfulness can be quite a, a tricky thing to, to do as well in the sense that is it's slightly different from from just breathing because it's 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 the whole non-judgment element as well so when you you're just focusing on your breath uh, as well sometimes you're like oh i'm not <laughs> doing it right or i'm i'm you know, breathing too fast or too slow or, or, or something like that, or I, uh, you know, my mind was wandering again, things like that. Right. Whereas in mindfulness, a, a, a large focus is on this non-judgment element as well. So it's, it's okay to do what uh, you're doing. As it's, well also gu- it's also it's guided. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Right. So there's a voice from another human guiding the mm. breathing. So that gives a different, like from an attention network point of view, like, it, it draws the brain's attention to that voice because our brains are really tuned for human voice and face. And so it guides us away from that monkey brain, if you want to call it that, or that ruminating as well. So I think that what you're describing is that the guided piece matters as well. Yeah. It can't absolutely. be just any, it has to be guided on the breath. Whereas if it's just guided from a story like history story, even though it's taking mm-hmm. the attention it's still you still need the breathing part to be really focused on because that's really important too. And sort of reminds you to return your attention to the breath because of, like you say, our monkey minds, we, we're always mind wandering. Um, and that's not that's not a bad thing. That's just that's, that's just a human human thing. That's that's quite normal. Um, but just having someone to remind you to return to the breath. So like to making that space to do that as well is is really important. I just think it's so fascinating that you did that study well done for think like this is why you're definitely a great scientist that's what it's all about isn't it curiosity to wonder that Mm. question I I think you've answered a question that many people are wondering about like what is enough and 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 there's no one answer is what you're trying to say because our brains are all different we've got all different situations and some of us can can already run a marathon but some of us are still walking Mm. And I think there's also the type of practice. So this is something I also want to look into a little bit more as well. Like, so the type of mindfulness practice. So I described the mindfulness of the breath meditation practice. So it was all about breathing. There's lots of different types. So there's the body scan where you scan different parts of the body. I actually had one participant in that study um, that was in the 20 minute mindfulness practice group who was really struggling. So this is someone um, who was really fidgety. She, she told me afterwards, she found it really hard. She was like, is there a shorter alternative for this? Because 20 minutes, if I find it so hard to sit, which I thought was a really interesting comment looking at what I looked at in the study. Um, and she, so she's fidgeting a lot. And I was thinking actually for this person, a walking meditation might've been more helpful because she was saying, I'm, I'm finding really hard to sit still anyway. And I'm always fidgeting and I'm, you know, I'm finding it this really hard. So for this person, maybe a different type of mindfulness practice, as well as the different dose, maybe, uh, you know, length could have been helpful absolutely so So this brings us to the personalized medicine approach um it's critical Mm. no matter what we do for altering someone's brain state we need to understand what we're doing and we need to understand that it should be under under with a professional 
that that understands that they're altering someone's mind and these things really matter don't they for helping people Mm. it's like if we give someone an antidepressant we have to know exactly it's been tested over 20 years of clinical trials um, because it is altering chemistry in the brain Mm. and the same for all of these techniques too really absolutely yeah and I think that's where sometimes it can be quite dangerous because of mindfulness being such a hype term so sometimes I come across people saying what mindfulness is uh, which isn't mindfulness you know on social media for instance and all of influences things like that what do you You hear them saying out of interest yeah I think it's it's something what's the one that really gets your goat (laughs) sometimes the um some things is, 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 is slightly exploitative as well. So where people say, oh, you need to have a special cushion to sit on or you need to, you know, um, buy, buy this product and then you can do mindfulness or have this spell or, or have all these different things, um, which, which you don't need. And I think that that's quite dangerous. Um, or, or when someone says, you know, this is what works for me, that must work for everyone sort of thing. That's quite dangerous, I think, because I think it stops a lot of people um, or, or, you know, have a lot of self-judgment as well. So like, I can't do this because it's, it's not right for that person. But it might be right for someone else. So this so brings us to um, mm. the, the question about children and how few studies have been done on the impact on children, especially the yeah. dose and the type of program and, and demonstrating an effect that, that helps. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know. Have you, someone with your experience, do you know what's been done for children and in this space that much yeah I think a lot of the time for um mindfulness programs are adapted for different populations so so including children you know so maybe they include some some more instructions there's things like this expandable book called a a Huberman sphere for instance where people uh, children can can watch um in breath and out breath things like that so like working with different resources has been found helpful but a lot of the time I think mindfulness programs are not translated well to different populations such as children for instance where where it's again taking something that has worked for adults and just saying oh that must work for children for instance but it might it might not be the helpful thing and it might not even be mindfulness so mindfulness isn't helpful for for everyone as well so for some people it can and can be not unhelpful and it doesn't work for them and I think that's okay too so I think um, in some cases it can make them worse too yeah absolutely this is the bit that we don't talk about enough uh, really because We only talk about the benefits, but like all drugs, there's a side of there's always side effects for different types mm. of people, and and you wouldn't know going into that, would you? Yeah, and I think it's it's a lot of people expect me to think, oh, mindfulness would be for everyone because because that's what I'm researching, but I don't think so because I think it's fine to to not be okay for some people. You know, I think with different therapies, it's it's also the case for for you know, like CBT works for some people but not other people. Uh, you know. Like, same, similarly to, to your experience with pharmaceuticals, that might work for some people, but not other oh, people absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Well, like, in, well I have to tell you in the mental health space, which is why many companies are pulled out, um, is that they only, in general, it's well-known number, 30% response rate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 30% response rate when it comes to drugs in, the, in like anxiety, depression, which is why all of these things, other things exist is because people don't get a lot of rec- benefit in the long term from taking Mm. medication all the time they get some benefit in the beginning especially for certain people but there's a definite genetic dose response effect and this and and we're always having to weigh up 
the benefit versus the risk, but um, which is why, you know, I was working in that space for 20 years and it, it, it is something that's really important to, to put right out there that <laughs> there is definitely not one drug for everyone that will work. Yeah, and I think that's the same with, with mindfulness as well. So this yes, is exactly. Why, so if we, yeah. if we look at that number, 30%, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, we, if once the studies come out and larger with more people doing it, that that poll is going to be about, well, we can't say until the work's done, but yeah. it wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and the what difficulty for the brain because of the individual nature of the architecture and how every brain's so different, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, uh, I, I just, I don't know, I just could, could imagine the, the issue is placebo effect in Absolute, these spaces. Yeah. And, and I think as well, it's it's again it's again similar with the um, thinking about you, you know like these these programs that I've spoken about before, MBCT and MBSR. There's been a lot of research saying that they're helpful for people, but this is what I mean. So it might not be helpful for everyone. So so maybe for some people, um, these programs are helpful, but then for other people, maybe like I mentioned, a walking meditation would have been more helpful for that person because they're so different. And I think that's okay. And I think it's it's fine to have even within. You know, if you're looking at mindfulness as helpful for some but unhelpful for others, but also within mindfulness being helpful for some people um, in that area, you know, these different doses might be helpful for, for different people. Yes, and, you know, absolutely. For some people, long meditations are really helpful. So this is where people, the research and the science really matter, don't they? And then having mm-hmm. having this um, handled by people that are reading all the papers and that are actually on the cold yeah. face of helping people. Um, so, Sarah, uh, in your experience, you've been doing it, you've lived in many countries. Uh, what do you think is the most important problem facing people at the moment? I think um, I think that's a is a tricky question. I think, especially in the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, I think we've just had it at, at tough times, and 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 I think still now there's still things going on the pandemic is still sort of going on I think um, I think we are a bit tired of the pandemic now but but it's, I think there's so many difficulties there's a lot of pressure on people to to perform as well it feels like um, also yes. you know they, you can never sort of leave and and be okay so you need to sort of show on, on social media what you're doing you need to you know keep going it's like a whole lot of you know hustling culture and things like yes, that definitely. So I think yeah, that, I think, I really, think the pandemic sped everything up in that way because you can yeah. you, just so much efficiency was gained in terms yes. of work. And then it's it's also that comparability because I think bef- before it it was less of a thing you just sort of doing your own thing as well and that's that's fine but looking at all the social media what other people are doing it absolutely whether that's in their I've never thought of professional life. You're absolutely right. And especially for someone you that's starting out, I think it's much more difficult than when I was starting out 30 odd years ago. I think it has changed enormously. Uh, And also the way academic uh, careers are in terms of tenure, et cetera, it's so changed. So, so yeah. what's what's what are you going to work on now? You've published these great papers that I'll put the links into all your papers in the podcast links, and your LinkedIn profile, so everyone can. And I know you have a website as well, oh, yeah. so people yeah, can yeah, ask you, you questions. I think oh, this, I think what yeah. you're doing is so critically important for the field. I think it's going to make a big mm. difference. So, what what's your next? Are you allowed to share what your what your what your kind of aim for your research program is? Where are you heading? 
in your career? What do you think is the next big things you'd like to work on? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things. So this is one of the things I'm always interested in a lot of different different things. Um, but also I think I think looking into this those those um area because I think that there's only the the beginning. So I'm working with a few different people um now looking more into this dose relationship. You know what what is going on there? I think there's still a lot more to explore, and it's quite a new sort of area. Not many people. Um, have looked into it so far we've sort of just taken some programs and examined them which is really really helpful uh, to do as well but now that there are some more programs looking at okay what is the relationship there and looking more into these areas um, but also I think so this is one of the areas I think I want to explore a bit more but also um, other things of, of mindfulness and, and, and looking at mechanisms as well so when, when how can can be helpful in different areas so things like mindfulness and personality you know again what works for individual differences individual yes. differences so what, yeah, what is the relationship like like how um, do people find out what their baseline like if you are a practitioner and a professional yeah. like how do you help how do you determine what's going to be beneficial for who I guess is what you're saying too mm. so yeah. if someone comes in how again, do you know where to start I guess you start small five minutes and see what yeah, happens and I think it's, that's, again, similar to, I think it can be helpful in, in sort of clinical populations for people with mental health difficulties. Definitely. But also, I think, in the general population, because everyone, um, it, you know, in the last two years as well as, as now or, or before then even, um, everyone's a bit stressed a lot of the time. There's a lot of anxiety. There's lots of uncertainty going on anyway in, in the pandemic more so than, than outside of the pandemic, I think. But still, you know, still quite a bit of uncertainty so things that can help with that, that can sort of help people going back to, okay, so hang on, what, what is going on uh, without worrying too much about the future because that can be really easily done. It's sort of that mindfulness can be quite helpful in, in that sense as well. So in these different areas, um, also thinking about social psychology as well, where it can be helpful for relationships, you know, um, what, what are the dynamics there? So there, there's lots of different areas to explore. Um, neuropsychologically, I know there's been... Um, a lot of research and I think there can be a lot more in, in neuroscience as well. So I know someone uh, that I work with from New Zealand, she's done a study with um, long-term meditators. So this is people that have been meditating for 20 plus years and she looked at the, um, their brains as well. So took them in, in and scanned their brains and actually found that they had uh, differences to their um, um, the surface of their brain and, and this brain structures were, were different to those that haven't been meditating for 20 years yes. um, which is really interesting we don't know if they had so what was the pain has she published when did she publish that work yet <clears throat> yes has i think she, it was published a couple of years ago now you might send that to me and i'll put that in the link too because yeah, I, like, I think yeah, it's incredible i mean they pub they mm. they scanned all the buddhist monks that was richard davidson's work wasn't it that was yes. in the yeah. early days yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. Do you want to go on? So which, do you remember which, yeah. what they, what, so did, did she draw the conclusion that that change in the brain was leading to emotional regulation, helping with reducing stress, anxiety, yeah. and depression? Yeah. And I think, I think, I think they were generally, so they were generally um, people who were quite low on psychological distress. So, so generally um, quite happy people. I know there's like happy monk studies and things like that. Um, similar to, to Richard Davidson's work as well, like, like neuropsychologically, the brain structure is just di looks different. One of the issues, though, is that you don't know what their brains looked at like from the yes, start. So maybe yeah, these were people absolutely. you know that were yes. predisposed to to liking meditation. Again, individual differences here were 
maybe they were people who were just just really benefiting from meditation from to begin with you don't know if they were um people yes. who, who had completely different brain structures to start with so this is again yeah. where it's slightly the, tricky to, to look into yeah that. this is where the long-term baselining and then starting mm. is going to be i'm sure someone's doing that too i know sarah laser who came did some of this with oh, mindfulness yeah. in her harvard students i think yeah but then and she does yeah. a lot of um i think she does a lot of if it's, if it's, i think there's also a lot of research looking into what's called informal mindfulness or sometimes it's called active mindfulness which is basically um people being mindful in in their everyday lives you know so like mindfully washing your dishes um feeling that the soap on your hands and yeah. mindfully brushing your teeth yeah. you know eating. paying attention to that eating that's much more difficult to examine though because it's not like you can like, yes yeah. you know shove a questionnaire in people's faces once they do that yeah. um but but i think that's really interesting as well so people there have been some studies looking into that a little bit more and, and um, how people can be more mindful in these things that can help them with their mental health as well. Yeah. And, and so interesting. So, what's your purpose now in life? I think, um, <clears throat> I think it changes quite a lot. Um, I was thinking about that um, because, because I think the, it, when I first started um, sort of my, my psychological career, um, or my career in psychology that, that I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's about helping people and, 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 you know, all these noble things, you know, like making the world a better place and things like that. Um, but I think it changes, it changes continuously what that actually is in the sense. And I think that's still something I'd, I'd want to do, but I think from, from a day-to-day perspective, it still changes. So, so how that looks like, how I can, how I can do that. Um, how can understand things better? So it's one of the things that I, I always like to do. It's the um, scientist in me that always likes to understand things better. So Absolutely. why does something work? How does it work? Um, or what, what is what is the reason it works? So why is it important that it works? Um, I think you're going to like you're be helping a lot of people with your research because like one thing I've come to see is the really the goal for all of us in all these spaces is to do no harm. Yeah. And so this idea of a prescription, a dosage, a, a baseline understanding of, and, and we're getting there, actually, we're getting to understand more about the baseline state of someone's brain health um, and, then, and then being able to probably measure uh, what that uh, practice that you prescribe for them does and, and to make sure it's doing something that you're hoping it's going to do and not to make the symptoms become worse over time. So I think the, these yeah. questions you're asking are really critically important and I only came to see this this year um, by stumbling mm. across Mind the Hype paper <laughs> and, yeah, and that's how I, paper. and because I think about this all the time, you know, we don't want to do harm. We are trying to help yeah. but we, we sometimes unintentionally it can do harm and we wouldn't be aware of it. And I think that's, and that's critically yeah. important. You are really helping a lot of people by not harming them too. I think, yeah. And I think it's, is also when I, um, when I speak to people who are not academics or, or are sort of in other fields as well, I think it's the whole accessibility issue. So a lot of the time, sometimes mindfulness has this connotation that you need to, you know, be a Buddhist monk and sit for hours and, and only certain people can do it. Um, for it to be helpful and you need to do all of these things similarly um with more uh, longer programs it becomes like like work as well not something you want to do but you have to do your hour of mindfulness practice it becomes like homework you know and um, so i think one of the things that that is actually quite helpful in this low dose and I, i'm i'm glad that that's 
what I found or the research found for, for people who are new to it um, and find that helpful that actually doing the five minutes can be helpful and it's something that's accessible. It's something that people can do. Um, and, and, and I think that's really important because it's, it's nice understanding all the mechanisms and, and, and the history of mindfulness and um, which is, is all really important. I'm also just wondering how for the, for the everyday person, how can that be helpful for that person? How can that be something that's accessible for someone? Um, and I think that there's a lot more research to be done, uh, but I think that's really important how well, to look at how that can be helpful. Thank you for sharing all your expertise and knowledge today on the Thriving Minds podcast. We're really grateful for your time. Um, she's fine in all the way, got up early in the UK to be interviewed tonight here in Australia. Yeah. And uh, we, we're really grateful, Sarah. And what a great question you asked. And that's like all great scientists and serendipity. And it's always when the results don't come out as you expect that you know you've got something that's useful. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's always looking at um, the upside of things as well. And actually, what, what, what is there? And I think that's really important to, we, to understand. And we all wish you really great success in your career. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. And um, thank you for, I think you're going to help a lot of people today. And um, yes, something, so, so it's a guided, so just in summary, it's a guided, look, look for a guided um, mindfulness uh, app or audio, five minutes twice a week for two weeks just to start, just as you would start if you're going to try running. Yeah, yeah, I would say that that's accurate. And it might be different again for other people. Some people might prefer longer practices as well, and that's, that's okay Absolutely. Too. Two things can be, can be good. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much.